Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guests today are Will Yates and Joe McCleary. Will is a freelance writer, documentary producer, and investigative researcher for television, film, and radio, with more than 18 years' experience producing factual programming for outlets such as the National Geographic, BBC, and the History Channel. Throughout his career, he has spent many years investigating the war in Iraq, and recently published a book titled War Trials, Investigation of a Soldier and the Trauma of Iraq. The book is a true account of Joe's time serving in Iraq as a British soldier in 2003, and his role in the tragic death of a 15-year-old Iraqi boy, which led to multiple war crimes court cases, of which he was ultimately cleared. Throughout the ordeal, Joe battled with severe mental health issues and has tried to take his own life numerous times. This book is the first time that a British soldier accused of war crimes in Iraq has opened up in an unguarded and in-depth manner. As a result, the book is a deeply moving account of the true nature of war and explores themes of military conduct and responsibilities of those serving in war zones. Will and Joe join me today to discuss the book as well as to dive deeper into some of the issues Joe's war experience has brought to light. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining me. Yep, you're more than welcome. Yeah, thanks. Good to chat. So, Will, maybe we'll start with you. I recently finished the uh, the book and found it absolutely captivating, mate. So, firstly, congratulations. It's a it's an excellent read, and I particularly liked I particularly liked how you brought. Uh, and it feels awkward saying this in front of you, Joe, but how you brought Joe's emotions through the pages and the torment uh, that he went through. Uh, but maybe I can ask you for some context for those who uh, are yet to read the book, uh, which I'll provide a link uh, to anyway in the uh, in the show notes. But maybe can you give us a quick synopsis of the uh, of the story and the background uh, of the book? Yeah, absolutely. So the the book, War Trials, uh, Investigation of a Soldier and the Trauma of Iraq, was uh, a book that came out of my meetings with, with Joe. And that was, was five years ago now. I first met Joe as part of a TV documentary development that I was involved in, developing a possible uh, documentary about British soldiers and the rules of war, which was even back then a, a contentious issue because of the investigations that were underway. There was a, a government body, uh, IHAT, the uh, Iraq Historical Allegations Team, that were investigating British soldiers over incidents and reports that they'd received over conduct in uh, both Afghanistan and in Iraq. I ended up during the the research and development phase for this possible documentary meeting a a bunch of different uh soldiers who had served in 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 both uh both theaters i met with uh joe and we sat down for two two and a half hours and joe's story just deeply impacted me really kind of captivated me what he had been through his his experiences resonated with me growing up in, uh, in in a small town just outside Liverpool. The the path that led him to, to sign up with the army, uh, the training, his, his time actually in Iraq, and then what happened subsequently. 
and that that is basically the, the story of of the book the the documentary as as you know sometimes tends to happen didn't go forward uh, partly because the contentious issue meant that the the government's uh, organization wouldn't give us access to, to what they were doing they kind of shut it up and uh, they, they wouldn't allow us to kind of interview them, the, the IHAT team or, or talk to their personnel about what they were doing. And that would have needed to have been a, a core component of covering it in, in, a, in a full manner that we would need to do. But Joe's story stayed with me. And it's probably a year later, about summer 2017, I, I just gave Joe a call and, and said, here, mate, remember we met last year, and your your story just it's stayed with me and want to see if uh, I can do something with it and explore writing a book about your experiences. And, and then we met numerous times after that. He was very kind, generous with his time and sharing. And the result of that was uh, was the book, which was published uh, recently. Yeah. And, and, and as I said, a great read and a very captivating read in the sense that it brought the reality of what soldiers on the ground actually experience. But there was one particular incident, and maybe I can ask you, Joe, if it's not too uh, uh, still too, too raw for you, but there's one particular incident that the entire book revolves around and that you ultimately, I guess, were answering for across a number of different investigations and one major court-martial for war crimes, correct? Yeah, 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 correct. Can you just give us a quick rundown of what that what the incident was? Uh, just so, again, just for context uh, for our listeners. Yeah, you mean the incident of of, of the boy? Of the yes, boy that's right. Of uh, Ahmed, yeah, Ahmed uh, Jabbar Karim. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You know, firstly, you know, it was just a, a, a tragic, tragic accident. Um, it's just a gets a call on the day over the radio that there was shots fired in the hospital grounds. We sort of guarded this hospital, you know, uh, Basra General Hospital. Everyone's tired. You know, we're so close to going home. We're peacekeeping at this point. Shots fired, so we go out on patrol, and then we come across looters that were looting the hospital. Uh, detained the looters, and they sort of got the, the crowd started gathering. All of the local people just starts gathering around, and never forget it. And they were shouting Ali Baba, Ali Baba, mm. trying to control the crowd. But the crowd's getting bigger, and they're throwing bricks at these people. And they're not small stones, and they were in like some type of puddle. But you were throwing bricks at them, and in the end, the bricks this is at the looters, out. right? Just, just, just Alibaba meaning looters. thief for yeah, 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 thief, yeah. Thief. yeah. So we got to call in the warrior to come round to collect them to bring them to the front of the hospital. So as the warrior comes and collects us, it's just myself um, and then the other lads, and then you know, me sergeant says to me, you know, mount up. Uh, we did take the looters, and I just looks up and just says, oh, okay. So I get in the back with myself and another one with these four detainees and we drive for 15 minutes. Now, I have no idea where I'm going, none whatsoever. You know, yourself, you've been in the back of an armoured vehicle, you know, that one piece of glass, which is like seven inches thick, is scratched, you can't see it. After 15 minutes, the door opens on the side of, a, of the side of a river, uh, which is bridge four. And as we goes down, uh, as we goes down to the, as the doors open and we let the, the, the Iraqis out, we cut the ties and obviously they probably think I'm going to get shot here. But that wasn't the case. You know, my rifle was over my shoulder and I just let them go. And one, they went to the, the, the water's edge and swam off to the to the pillow. 
But Ahmed was at the front. The more we we approached him, he obviously thought he was, he was pushed himself back. And then he was doing where he was struggling, and I, and then I turned round and sees the signal to mount up from my side, which is a, a round circle, and then that which means double time. Now I'd left four lads back in the hospital with no armoured vehicle and you know obviously missing four of us I had to make that choice on the guard you know and I thought they're getting attacked so then I said to the boys right mount up I think and he'd just wash to the side there or just climb up and get out and then he'd walk home so we'd gone back into the vehicle mounted up got back and as I've come out the vehicle I've looked and the lads are fine you know, and it was pretty much, I was just, a, just a tragic accident. Mm. You know, it, it was never, you know, there was reports of us throwing bricks at them. It, it didn't happen. You know, this was just all falsified statements. Just doing, like when they were asked in court about it, you know, he just said, well, I'm here for compensation. He wasn't here about it. what happened. He was just there for compensation. Yeah. And we'll definitely get to that part because I think that's a that's a yeah, yeah. that's part of a much bigger picture. Oh, I understand. Sometimes I just ramble on a bit. No, not at all. No, no. I mean, mate, I'm 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 just sorry that you had to go through that experience. I mean, that must no, be. It's just, I was twenty years of age, you know, twenty one maybe. You know, and if I could take that moment back, oh, I'd take it back. Hmm. You know, I've, yeah, I've suffered massively over it. Yeah. Oh, and you know, my heart bleeds for that family. You know, no matter what who you are, mm. doesn't matter whether you come from Iraq, whether you come from Britain, whether you come from Australia, a, a father's loss of a son is is humongous. Mm. You know what I mean? And, and I am so sorry that I never I managed to save him. I wish I did. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. it was just a massive accident. And Will, was this the, um, the what captured you about the story? Was the, I guess, the, 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 the tragedy of it, that then followed up with, I guess, Joe being dragged through the courts uh, to, you know, relive that decision, that moment, that image that he just described to us. Was that what captured you about the story? Yeah, I think to some large extent, what grasped me about the the story and, and compelled me to write it was really the, the theme of, of the trauma of war and how widespread it actually is. Uh, Joe just used the phrase, uh, you know, his heart bleeds for the, the, the family of the, the boy that tragically drowned. And at the same time, you know, I, 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 could, I, I could totally understand where Joe was, was, was coming from and thinking of the many victims of, of war whether they're people who are displaced or those that are killed or their family members but then also the soldiers themselves and the scars that they receive uh whether they're physically wounded or like so so many um scarred emotionally and, and mentally by by what they've witnessed and just kind of feeling that compassion for for, for joe and the struggle that he had had and that his 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 family as a knock-on effect had had been through um in trying to help him through that mm. and i was just really fixated on on trying to convey as as, as much as i could through the written word uh the the the, the trauma of of war and how why the 
concentric circles of that spread out mm. to, to impact so many people. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I, and I give Joe, you, I give you full credit for being so vulnerable to 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 speak so freely for the book as well, because I think that's a part of while your story is so prominent, it became so public. I think there are many uh, soldiers who suffer in silence. Uh, your story was aired for the world to see, but the fact that you actually were brave enough to to face the media and then subsequently will to write the book in such a way that showed the human person behind it, behind the story, because I think you, you it wasn't just and, and and if I'm just you know and I've just read the book so so it's all still relatively fresh in my mind. But you this was right. I think this was, might have been the last day of your tour, but you've had a pretty rough tour because this was 2003, right? yeah. the beginning of the war, right? Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the invasion, what people yeah. don't realize. Yeah. yeah, what people don't realize is you know we we sometimes didn't sleep for two days. You know, you know, especially at the start. I remember standing there at one point on, on guard and just standing up and falling asleep. Like I could have literally fell straight over. And, you know, you had to push your body to the limit every day. The heat, you know, the, the climbing, the constant, you didn't know which one was the enemy and which one wasn't. You were constantly on pins. You know, we, we lost Molly and Muzz, you know, two great lads, two young soldiers, one with a family and one had a family. And, you know, they were great lads. And, and another four were shot down. You know, managed to survive, and what people don't realise is, I remember that night like it was you know tomorrow, and it, we like you could hear people knowing that there was a man down, in men down, multiple casualties. Everyone's trying to get back together, but what had happened is we were in all round defence, and these mercenary soldiers were in the centre of it, under sheets of metal, and they lied there all day. So the minute the night fell, they just come up and open fire, and kill Molly, kill Moz, killed. And, and injured multiple people and that night it's, someone came in and covered us after the firefight we couldn't even retain fire mm. and when we got cover I remember lying in a room pitch black it must have been oh, God, 40 of us just my platoon and every man in there was crying mm. every man shed a tear for them lads because he was just like and that was probably three days in and we were like wow not even coming home yeah. You know, this is this is crazy. Yeah. And that lasted like that from the dog to the tour, whether we went from aggressive to then peacekeeping and then to try and police it. Yeah. It was just crazy. And a lot of time, we didn't really rest. You know, there was, there, we were on ration packs. People don't realise, you know, yeah. people think like, oh, you know, we eat, we eat rations. Like, you know, we're not as good as the Americans, but we have like, for breakfast we have beans and a burger we have uh, biscuits and paste for yeah. dinner yeah. and then later on we'll have a chicken and if you're lucky there'll be a dumpling in it you know it just depends how lucky you draw and at the end of the at the end of that meal it'll be a treacle pudding no one likes treacle pudding <laughs> you know what I mean? but you'll stuff it in because you're just that hungry you're that tired yeah. Yeah. You know, the heat is just crazy you know, and that's and, that's and, something that people don't understand. I mean, if, even just the the heat of of, of Iraq, uh, and and we spoke offline before. I mean, uh, and, and yeah. most of my audience will know I've spent um, about eight months in Iraq, and and the heat. Uh, and I was in Baghdad, not even Basra, where it gets even hotter. 
and you were in body armor, you know, all yeah, gunned body up. Armor, helmet, heavy, helmet yeah. a lot. I mean, just that in itself is such an uncomfortable feeling. Uh, but that incident that you spoke about, uh, where Molly and Muzz uh, were killed, that struck me. And Will, again, congratulations to you on the way you depicted that because you could really feel the, feel the terror. Uh, within it, because as you said, you were in all around defense, right? And in, in, in army speak, that basically means everybody's facing out, protecting the, the yeah, kind of right, the, yeah. right, protecting the circle, right? Then the, the headquarters yeah. is generally in the middle. Uh, everybody's facing out for any threats that are coming in. But all of a sudden, for you, the threat was in the middle and shooting up the middle. And unfortunately, that's where you lost two of your two of your mates from the platoon. And then you, from there, I mean. You can't you can't shoot anywhere because there's a risk of you know shooting your mates on the other side, right? The night after that happened, the very next day we were up and out. And you know, people don't realize you you can't just take a week out. You know it's happened and it's happened. We know that that's happened. And the, his headset, one of the headsets was missing, mm. but it was only a headset where you can speak to each other, not you know like a hundred meters radius. You just a little click, and we can speak to each other now. That mercenary soldier had his headset and he was within 100 meters of us. And he said, you bastards, you bastards, you will all die, you bastards. And it went dead in in an Iraqi's voice, you know, in what I'm saying. Yeah, is accent, in yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it sent shivers down my spine and sighed in Ferguson, booted us all as we were lying on the ground. Who's messing around? Who's the prankster? Mm. It wasn't us. He had the headset. But... It's a it's a concrete jungle, you know. There's buildings everywhere. In that hundred meters, it, it could be anywhere. Mm. It's not like it's just a flat surface and we can spot them and then put the rounds towards them. It, you know, we searched that building. We searched every single one of them. Couldn't find them. Mm. And it was just that one that haunts me, you know. And even then, I was lying on the ground, twenty years of age, thinking, "Wow, I can come on from this." We had to write letters home to me parents to say they, they advised us to say if you want to write something to your family mm. you know write a little letter home to say you know might be coming home will have uh, have you have you done any military service yourself before i have not no i've not served in the, in the military and he would have been a great soldier <laughs> great target <laughs> Well, the, the reason I asked that is, is is not to put you on the spot anyway, but I'm just what 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 led you down this path because this is quite a unique path that you've taken to explore these types of stories. Um, you know, where's the link for you? What drew you towards these types of stories, which are quite traumatic to try and extrapolate and unpack and then tell the world? What what motivated that? There are a couple of motivations, I think. One of which was. Uh, I'm interested in in history, and it's I've done a lot of history programs, read a lot of history books. It's you know something that interests me anyway, um, and and the, the history that what led to the the war, the most recent major conflict that uh, the UK, US, uh, and Australia have been involved in. There wasn't a huge, doesn't seem to be a huge amount written on it. There's there's some titles, but not a wealth of, of material. And, and I think it's important that that, that conversation uh, continues to be had. So I kind of want to add to that conversation. But then also, I was familiar with the Iraq story, uh, having done a documentary drama 
about two years after the Iraq war uh, about the suicide death of a British former weapons inspector, a guy called Dr. David Kelly. And I worked on that for about a year and a half or so, which is quite a long time in, in, in mm. TV terms. But I uh, attended the government inquiry that was into his his death, the, the Hutton inquiry, uh, met and spoke to a, a load of people who were involved in that. And, you know, that was, uh, you know, really impactful project to be involved in because it was not just looking into why a former British weapons inspector who, who then spoke to a, a journalist about his concerns of the government's suggestion that there were weapons of mass destruction and, and his concerns about actually whether or not that was uh, in overinflated evidence, but also just it was it was really kind of a, one of the first critical examinations of the of the war in Iraq. Mm. And why is it important to tell these stories? Not just Joe's, but also about that. About that. So, so the bigger picture about the war that you just mentioned, you know, about even going to war, and then of course uh, Joe's uh, on top of that. Yeah, uh, it's important. Sadly, history, if you don't agree that it repeats itself, it at least comes in cycles, right? There's there's things that you can like look back on and and, and see sadly repeated mistakes being made. And, you know, you, you can think, you know, we try and live in the now and, you know, what's the value of, of looking at the past? Well, actually, you know, it's going to affect what we do in today and it's going to affect the future because if we don't learn from our mistakes. We don't look back and recognize how the events that the, the fallout of, of the government sexing up uh, a dossier about its its accusations and its claims about Iraq and using that to, to push forward uh, a, a controversial case towards war uh, in the Middle East and then all the negative impact from that, then we're not going to learn from it when it happens next time. If we don't look at the experiences of, of you know, strong you know, important stories like that of, of Joe's who've, who've fought for his country and really kind of been neglected after the fact by by those that he served, then what's going to stop it from, from happening again in the future? We've got to learn these lessons. Mm. And that was one of my key motivations. Yeah, spot, spot on. And, and I mean, to be honest with you, that's one of the key motivations of this podcast as well is, uh, and particularly on this uh, Iraq war, I've just interviewed one of our prominent uh, political scientists not long ago. Uh, and it's now basically discussed in the open that Australia went to Iraq purely for our alliance with the US. That's it. That's the bottom line. And we're hearing this now quite openly from some of our senior leaders. Uh, these are something, these are things that we need to, I guess, discuss because Soldiers are going forth believing in the mission, but when the mission is not what it's, you know, when you're not fighting, when you're not fighting the the uh, the war that you think you're fighting, uh, that it all kind of gets a little bit jumbled up, and especially when you're not prepared for the war that you're going to fight. And 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 maybe Joe, this is a question to you: How well were you prepared for the war? <sighs> That you went to fight. Oh, it's just, you know, people think you know we we train, and you think we would train for these things. And we you know, listen, the British Army are fantastic. You know, the, the ball we're penny pinches. We 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 went to go and fight in in, in Basra, one of the hottest places in in the world. 
and we went to Senalaga where it was minus 20. You know, we went and done an exercise there. We were, that's, your we were that's your pre-deployment training, right? Pre-deployment training, yeah, to, to go back in there. It's, it was, you know, it was that bad. The, train, the, the tracks were, were cutting through the mud. It was like concrete and you were snapping. And it was minus 20 and we had to get a steel pole, put the pin back in. We were shivering. It got called off in four days. One lad had frostbite, couldn't go and save it and rat. You know, it was just embarrassing that the rifles kept locking up. Everything was done wrong. You know, prior to it, like the fitness side of it was fantastic. We were okay. Everyone was good twice a day. But prior to it, you know, the, the actual preparation for going in there was awful. You know, we didn't have no pre-training. Everything with the army is like, oh, we'll just cuff it. You know, we'll just do it this way. There and we're bloody no good plan. at it. That's the that's that's a that's a downfall. We're bloody yeah. good at it. You know, that's a down. That's a that's yeah, a well, yeah. You know, yeah, that's that's yeah. why politicians who rely on the military so frequently because they'll get the job done one way or another, right? One way or the other. You know, listen, I, I know that the lads that were with me were my brothers. You know what I mean? And no matter what we did, and we did it to the best. You know, we had poor food, poor equipment. We had one set of uniform for the whole of that tour. Mm. One set. Not I had no underpants. You could see the, the cheeks of my ass mm. through it. Do you know what I mean? It just faded away. My knees were shot. It looked like I had ripped jeans on. Mm. You know, my, my shoulders were ripped. We looked homeless. We looked like homeless people. But every day, without fail, we were up and we wouldn't let it deter us. When we were hungry, when we were tired, it didn't matter. We just stuck together and we'd always get some joker in the pack. Yeah. would bring the morale up. You know, but we were not equipped at all. We had no night vision. You know, what about had, understanding the uh, the the human terrain or the cultural context that you were deployed to? Did you have any idea of the of of really who the enemy was and who was you know friendly, no. quote unquote? No, no, we didn't. We we did see some footage of like uh, chemicals being uh, like we thought before we went out on a lot of training. Uh, I spoke to Will about it as well. Um, a lot of training in respirators. Uh, prior to going out there. So it was all like chemical warfare. And I think we, we focused a lot on that prior to going out. And it was, it was quite frightening, if I'm honest. You know, thinking like, you know, especially when you're giving your pens to stick in your leg and you're thinking, some bloody, I ain't sticking that in my leg. Mm. You know, it was it was quite frightening knowing that each pen's going to make you live for 15 minutes. So you got three pens, you got 45 minutes uh, before you can get evac'd out. But... We basically, it felt like that's what was going to happen no matter what went before we went out there. And it ended up being totally different. Yeah. You know, thank God there was no chemicals used, but that's what we trained for prior to it. Yeah. And I guess we, we drank our own Kool-Aid in that sense, right? Um, but Will, was yeah. this, this was generally the, and I guess you've done, you've investigated a lot more about this on the, on the big bigger scale. Was this the general feel that you get um, for the rest of the soldiers deployed, or was this a unique experience? Or how? What's your thoughts on that? Absolutely, I found from talking almost, you know, universally to the, the many soldiers in in different uh, in a, you know different levels that logistics. Why you know understand that it's a massive part of the military effort when it comes to Iraq. It was massively lacking. 
there were crates of uh, ammo and defensive plates that should have gone in body armor that were lost in you know on their way through the Red Sea to to Iraq. Uh, the, there were boots that were that were melting because uh, of the heat. Uh, I had, you know, one soldier tell me that uh, the the boots were in such degraded, bad condition, they ended up finding a huge stockpile in in an Iraqi hangar of uh, Iraqi soldiers' boots that uh, that they'd obviously just left behind and Mm. fled. So they're like, oh, we'll we'll use some of these these boots for the lads. So you've got, like, British soldiers running around in Iraqi boots. Like it's mm. it's almost it's almost farcical, and that you know that was m- one of the things that you know greatly hampered the the, the soldiers from from uh, hearing their their stories was just the logistical problems that they they went mm. through and experienced. Mm. And then of course the, the the mission set, I guess as well. And I think again you bring this through really well, and something you mentioned just earlier as well. I mean, talk about the kind of three block war, right? I mean, on one hand you were uh, fighting uh, hardened. Some might say hardened enemy, uh, at least in so, in some instances. Uh, in another block, you were you know delivering humanitarian aid. In another block, you were dealing with uh, looters. Can you describe that a little bit, uh, Joe, and and what that meant for you as a you know twenty twenty one year old? How do you deal with all that? You know, you know that was one of the toughest things I had to deal with every day. You know, like dealing with the the, the locals. Every day, you know, they were begging for water. You know, it was a country that was in water. You know, we went from that to the peacekeeping side of it, and you know, to the, to the aid. I remember a vehicle comes in with water. They were throwing babies at me, just young, brand new babies, and I had to catch this baby in my hand, and she was on the floor with her legs wrapped around me, screaming for water, but. You know, in the end, we had to pull the truck out because it was we were just getting overrun. Mm. We couldn't hold back. The only other way was to was to push them back. You know, like was to get in the tank because there was just hundreds, thousands of people turned up for this aid, and we were like, again, we were so unprepared for it. It was unbelievable. You know, seeing these, this baby in my arms, I was just a young lad, and I'm thinking, you know, you're that desperate, and people don't even realize, you know. We had to go to the toilet and they'd be hanging over the fence when you're on the toilet, screaming at you, please don't miss that water, water. And you think, oh, it was just let me go. I had to dig a hole. It was just a rip. You know, like, it was just constant. No matter what, every day, every single day, it was just hard work. You know, the people were suffering. You know, there was nothing there for them. You know, when and going from that and then into this policing role, you never knew which role you were doing. Mm. You know, if you're on quick response, whether you were, you know, we, we had set days in the end. Um, and you know, you go on quick response or you go out, and every day the same thing, you know, people were just desperate. You know what I mean? They were desperate for food, they were desperate for water, you know, and it was just pushed upon us and it was tiring, it really was. And it was heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah, I was you know, just going to say that's the other thing that we don't really talk about. I mean, it's a it's 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 obviously tough on on the soldiers that are on the ground um, having to face this. But you know, we often forget the civilians who are seeing you as yeah. the only beacon of hope in what is absolute 
madness um, and trying to find trying to find some way out uh, to to help you out um, or, 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 or help themselves. Sorry, we get issued like two bottles of water per day. You know, most of the soldiers, including myself, like we try and give a bottle away. You know, there's nothing worse than drinking hot water anyway. You know, you have to get it down your neck. Mm. But you try and give it to the people that needed it. And sometimes it was worse when you did that because it caused murder. Oh. You'd fight each other for it. And then you'd realise, unless you can pull someone aside and say, put it in your bag and hide it, mm. they would kill each other for it, for that, just that drop of water, for that clean water. And it, it just, you'd sometimes sit on the bed of a night and just think, oh, you want to help. Mm. You really do. It's just nothing I can do. Yeah. Nothing how, I can do. How quickly does one become desensitized to human suffering? Because that's one of the one of the things that's it's one of the offshoots of war, right? Be seeing it all the time. And, and I just remembered my own, you know, my own time as a kid in Bosnia, you know, the first time uh, close people died, you know, everybody cried. Within a month, uh, you know, you'd hear someone died every day, basically. You'd basically just kind of say, yep. Such is life. Uh, there, but for the grace of God, go. I think that's the phrase. Uh, but yeah, how, how did you find that? Did you find that you became desensitized over time? You know what? That's just a great question because you know when I look back at some of the stuff in Iraq and some of the the incidents that I had to deal with, and I tell sometimes to my family, you know, these stories and the like, you really had to deal with that, Joe. But to me out there, you're right. I was desensitized because it just became normal. You know, seeing a dead body was, it was just normal. Nothing, it wouldn't phase me, wouldn't do it, pick it up, put it in a bag, move it on. You know, things like that just became a job. It just became normal. And when I look back on it now, oh, it breaks my heart. You know, like I think to myself, oh, so sad. But I didn't know it. Even when I came home, I had no idea. Like that was what you had to deal with that job. You had to do this, you had to see that. It made no difference to me. Mm. because you pretty much within three days out there, you know, you're desensitized. Mm. Everything is just normal. The, the sewage that runs down the road, the smell of raw sewage just becomes in your nostrils. You know, it just becomes normal, standing in it, walking over it, you know, getting your rifle up every morning and having to, like, you, you could move three or four bodies in a day, yeah. maybe more, and you don't lose no sleep. You know, nothing. You'd have blood on your clothes, blood on your hands, be it a firefight, whatever it was. That was just the day. Hmm. You know, it was just like probably going to Tesco's or the Ali, you know, like just go shopping for use. It's for, for, for them. You know, it's it was no different for me. You know what I mean? I think a lot of people, when they don't know about war, that is, is one of the key factors. You don't become... You know, you, you become a part of it. You know, you, you, you don't realise how much it's had an effect on you. Mm. You know, and it's all building up inside. It just becomes normal. You know, I remember seeing a container full of bodies. And I remember saying to my mum when I got home, oh, yeah, there was loads of them. Mom, you know, they were just lying on top of each other, just throw them in the container. And my mum's like, are you sure, son? I was like, yeah, well, what's wrong with that? What do you want me to do to them? It was just, I had no emotion. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was just part of my job. Mm. And it, it shouldn't have been like that. You know, like, I suppose that's just war, though. Yeah, and I think that's what people don't understand. I mean, uh, uh, and I guess, Will, from your perspective, you've interviewed and, and spoken um, to 
also senior officers, but also politicians, if I if I gather, uh, or at least people in government. How well is the image of war? What what Joe just described, the sounds, the smells, the rawness, the desensitization of it, how well is that actually understood in the quote-unquote halls of power? In other words, those that are moving the chess pieces on the, uh, on, on the board. That's a really good question. I don't think from my experience that the true cost of war is grasped in its great enormity by those that are making those key decisions that are sending uh, the young men and, and young women to out to fight. I mean, there were in 2003, there was about 46,000 British troops out in, in Iraq. And, you know, just to, to hear the, the, the vivid description that, that, that Joe just gave of what the, the conditions were like and, and so many young and they were predominantly young, you know, 19, 20, 21 year old, most of them, the average age was, re- you know, just really young people. I mean, for anyone at any age, these are just horrendous things for people to experience I mean, even just to, to to read about them, to to hear them. I remember, you know, after having sat down with with Joe over coffee in 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 Liverpool during the research process for a couple of hours, hearing his stories, and I'd just be walking away after after we say goodbye, and I'd just be like in a almost like in this kind of like daze, because you know, having been kind of saturated with hearing those experiences. And, and this is just, you know, me for, for for two hours asking Joe and hearing, asking questions, hearing his stories. Joe and, you know, 40,000 plus other young men and women actually were there and they experienced this. And it's it's soaked into their lives, permeated their lives, of those those experiences. So, you know, people at the, at the top, they're the ones, like you said, moving the chess pieces. They can academically maybe comprehend they can read the reports uh, you know the the classified and the declassified reports of, of you know what's happening and the and I know they've got to see things from all kind of perspectives but they I really don't think are grasping what it's doing to to the young men and women who mm. fight out there mm. and of course then uh, you know that <laughs> drives these types of missions without any clear kind of sense of purpose or or uh, and translates into not well thought out conflicts. Uh, and, and now that you set that context, Joe, I just want to get back to the this idea of looting, because this is where I guess the story takes the tragic turn. Yeah. You're now in you're in Basra. There is lawlessness. Looting to the uninformed ear. Sounds like a couple of people breaking into a shop and taking a couple of TVs out, right? That's not what we're talking about here, are we? No, 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 no. I mean, it, they just took everything, you know, like they looted, whether it be chairs. And it was encouraged, know. right? It was not, yeah. it maybe yeah. not encouraged, but at least allowed from the top down. It was There was a political yeah. strategy behind it as well, right? Yeah, I mean, you know. There was, did he talk anything? Yeah, the, you see yourself, you know, the donkeys, the the carts, you know, the, the old cars, you'd fill them with everything. You couldn't stop it. You'd grab one person and the other one's doing it behind you. 
you know, it was just, it was just fending for their lives. You know, each individual family, whoever home they had, was just every day was a survival mode just for them. Mm. You know, it was it was mass throughout the country. You know, they were stealing chairs to sit on, you know, firewood, you know, like anything they could do, anything to survive, food, you know. It was it was crazy. You couldn't look you'd look anywhere and they were trying to they were trying to steal or it wasn't really stealing to be fair. They were just they were just fending for their lives. That's what they were doing. You know, and and, and you put my you know, I I'm a family man. If that was this this happened to me, I would have done exactly the same. And so would everyone, because that's what you do. But trying to deal with it, it was just out of this world, you know. And I think, Will, I think you've wrote about it in the book or maybe I'm not sure if I read this elsewhere but it, it was almost a bit of a you know certainly it was the US policy let looting occur because it was the kind of payback was that is that right did I read that in the book or, yeah, or that's, elsewhere that's, that's you know that was in the book actually uh, one of the chapter titles is let them loot which is a, a quote that I took from someone who I, I interviewed and he was describing the policy that the Americans had towards the the Iraqis their their view the the Americans was they were coming to bring democracy to uh to the Middle East to Iraq and and part of that democracy the idea that they can choose their own destiny was they're just going to take all the reins off and if they chose to loot let them loot you know mm. they can readdress you know the balance of of power you know existed between the Saddam the Ba'ath party and you know, between the Shiites and the Sunni and, and, you know, they had the freedom to just, you know, fight it out and rob and steal from each other. But it's, you know, it's up, up to them to kind of do what they wanted to do. And Let the people enjoy their freedom, right? It was... Uh, <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, even if that freedom is 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 anarchy. And, uh, but it, you know, it, it's, it was, it was kind of really a, from, again, this is something I, I was, you know, I was told by, by multiple sources, that it was actually a, you know, political development that, that led to at least the British clamping down on, on the looters, even if the, um, you know, the commanders weren't necessarily told how to do it, they were told that they needed to, to stop the looting. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's a, and maybe, what, can you just also just finish that off by saying why, because there was again, I think, at least through the words of your your book, the, 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 there are echoes uh, of uh, politics uh, within it. Indeed, it was it was politics that, as I understood it, that motivated the the push to control the the looters. Uh, the in the early days of April, the uh, Iraq. National Museum was looted extensively and and like tens of thousands of priceless artifacts Mm. dating back to the Babylonian era and, you know, just incredibly valuable pieces were, were, were just pillaged. And when that all of our history, all of our history. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and that's simply, you know, part of the amazing thing that, that drew me to the story is, is Iraq. It's 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 just it's, it's amazingly rich tapestry of history. And and when the news of the, the the looting started to filter into particularly the the, the British uh, press, that became a a big kind of 
political firestorm developing. I mean, there was already, particularly in, in the UK and, and, and in other parts of the world as well, but there had been, you know, a, a very vociferous campaign against the war. And in, in February, uh, you know, just a, a month before the war began, there had been a million people marching in the, on the streets of London against the war. Uh, so there was already that, you know, that being the context of, you know, the, the British public being a bit hesitant while they supported the troops, they were actually hesitant that the government were making this push to war. And then when the news came out that, you know, the, the Iraq's and, and our, um, you know, global culture was, was being robbed and pillaged, the government said to the army commanders, OK, well, you, you need to put stop to the looting. You, you just need to stop. Hmm. As if you know they could you know wave a magic wand and and, and make things stop, and then the the British commanders were frustrated at just being told to to kind of prevent the looting, but not being told exactly how they could go about that, and and that was that was really one of the the key failures, part of this wider spread lack of planning for the aftermath of the conflict that really you know led to the tragedy that that, that Joe was was involved sadly yeah. in yeah and i guess when we just again to put it into context this is what's happening now in basra and basra is a million plus city right uh and there were forty-two thousand troops uh not all frontline troops either so a lot of logistics and everything else that are now being asked to try and manage that uh given the uh the what but not the how which again military being military that's you know we work off that give me the intent what is it what is the intent that you want me to achieve and i will go and find a solution for it uh, but none of you were trained for this, uh, uh, I suspect, Joe, and this is what then led to a number of creative methods uh, that at face value, in, in a way, you know, when I was reading it, it kind of makes sense, right? But then, of course, there's the tragic consequences that come with it. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Do you mean like the, what, what we did to the looters, you mean? Yeah, yeah. The methods where... Yeah, yeah. A lot of the time, and in, in a lot of the places, they were like wetting them and driving them out and making them walk home. You know, a, a fifteen-mile journey home. So they'd be soaking wet, and you, you, that's that was like a deterrent. If you get caught again, you're going to drive you fifteen miles out, and you're walking your bare feet all the way home. You know, and it's it, shameful it was, in that in the in yeah. in that cultural context. You know, the whole neighborhood, the whole world will know that you are because being, you know, we did try and detain them inside the camp. Do you know, but where, where do you detain? We, we had a, like a, um, a cage on the side, you know, it, we, we, we bring them back into base, put them in there, but from there, there was nowhere to take them. What do you do? And within a day that was scrapped because they were like, within 45 minutes, four vehicles turned up and the cage was full, you know, and, and then we had to then think, well, what are we going to do with these people? You know, we, we're going to have to feed them, water them. And, and obviously, there's no punishment for them. Like, we, just have like a police force. It's not like you can hand them over to the, you know. So, yeah. yeah, we can't send them in then and say, right, you'll be jailed and there's your home now. You know, and I remember looking, thinking, and I was guarding, and I was on the gate, and I was like, you know, with these lads inside, and they were just sitting there talking to each other. And I think they were thinking, like, what's happening now? It was ridiculous. So there had to be some type of strategy to, to, to deter it, to stop it. And there was lots of other ways of doing it, you know, and, you know, the punishments, but they were, you know, you weren't going to, there's nothing you could, you couldn't strike them or hit them or anything like that because they just, they just come back at you. 
you know, eventually you do it. It had to be something like where you'd humiliate them, you know, so everyone knew that lad walking back would be a looter. But it just didn't happen. You know, there was so many different methods, some I don't even know about, you know what I mean, of trying to deter them. It was, I think every day would be, you know, the top brasses would think of another plan. Yeah. And then it just filters on the ground. Mm. And then we just, we just do it. And I guess the, you know, going back to that point about, you know, desensitised, the more you're desensitised to the suffering of people and you've got to solve a problem, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that, you know, the methods of the kind of wedding method, I'm, I don't know for a fact, but I'm sure that that wasn't the worst of the methods uh, that some people came up with. Um, I, yeah. I, I would have to imagine. Yeah, I, I can, yeah, I agree with that. And, and, you know, people have got to understand, you know, people who have this view and never been to war or anything like that, you know, it, it, one of the key factors is that it, it's just a massive factor. The desensitization is, is something that I didn't realize was even happening. Mm. You know, it just became normal. The looting, the everyday stuff, it was always normal. And, and some of the stuff wasn't. You know what I mean? And, and it just becomes a part of war, unfortunately. And was it how, how difficult was it to maintain compassion? time and time again for looters and for, you know, in fact, even just for, for everyday people, you know? Yeah. I, I got out of the hospital um, and I, my room where we stayed was a, below us was uh, the children's hospital bit. Mm. Um, and they had incubators, they didn't work, but it kept the flies off the children's face and they were all sick. Listening to them parents cry overnight, was just as bad as being in a firefight. Screams at four o'clock in the morning because the daughters or the sons died. You know, every morning I went there and I liaised with the nurse. I gave all my water away to them. I tried to help as much as I can. If I could get anything, I would bring it in. You know, we tried, but it was awful. You know, and it became normal. Listening to them screams, you know, you just wake up and... You think, oh, God, you knew that as someone else. But them nurses came in every day, unpaid, and, and helped them. I mean, I remember one situation in the hospital. There was a drunk male, you know, and it's so frowned upon. You drink alcohol there, and it's so frowned upon. He was drunk, and he had a cut round the back of his leg. It was massive, and he was pouring a lot of blood. I managed to wrap his leg up took his arm and they wouldn't, they refused to see him in the hospital. He just said, well, let him die. And we said, look, we will not. Because he was drunk, right? That's why, because he was smelling of alcohol. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the doctor, and so the rule was like, the doctor will see him as long as I'm in the room with him and another soldier. And it was barbaric. There was no anesthetic. There was no nothing. They put a pin through, the hook through his leg pulled the wire and the skin wouldn't close because the, the gas was that big. He had the doctor had a cigarette in his mouth and the ash was just falling off it. Paid the gloves on and he had no sympathy for this fella. He wanted to flip. It was more like a torture room than it was. And I was sitting there thinking, of all of that was going on, I kept thinking, why has the doctor got a cigarette in his mouth? He just didn't see it. And then towards the end, I thought, oh my God, this is like torturing him. You know, and I said to the doctor, look, wind it up. No, we'll patch him up ourselves. In the end, he just bandaged his leg um, and then threw him out. But the doctor kicked him 
and say, get out. You know, because he was he was a drunk. He was drunk. Mm. Yeah. You know. And, that's. I mean. I mean. These are. Uh, I'd imagine these are these are things that um, contributed in some way towards your mental well being when you came back. Yeah. And I mean, we talked about the the actual incident that you that you were then uh, you know having to face court martial for, but and I have no doubt that that compounded. Uh, and I think it was post traumatic stress disorder. You were diagnosed. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. When did you first start, or, or what did that journey look like for you? Was it when you came back, or did it start? Did you start kind of experiencing mental health challenges yeah. in, in still in Basra? Or? When I came home, um, we, came, we came home. We, we were in Germany. We sort of locked down for a week, you know, instead of letting these lads out. You know, you understand. All these lads want to do is drink, most of them. And I, I never. I just sort of just sat at home, and I got home to Liverpool. My mum had lit the street up with flags. You know, Joe's back from Iraq. You know, family and friends. I didn't want to see anyone. It was so strange. And I remember seeing my nan and my granddad and all these people. You know, these writing letters. Like people don't understand them letters in Iraq is priceless. You know, I read my granddad's letter when he spoke. You know, and um, he he was fantastic. I'd read that letter every day. I'd have it in my top in my map pocket. I'd pull it out when I was feeling down, and I'd read it. And when I got home, I remember drinking one beer and I said to my mum, am I okay to go to bed? I just wanted to lie in my own bed. And it was just so noisy downstairs, I didn't like it. And then, yeah, my mum had to like say to everyone, would you mind leaving them? And I just went to bed and it was, I remember just crying, just crying my eyes out. Like, I was so happy to be home. And, you know, I came downstairs with my mum and I said, look, mum, I just, I'm really sorry. I know you went to a massive effort, but... I don't want to do it. I don't want to. It just, it just got too noisy and people asking me ridiculous questions. You know, did you kill anyone? How many people did you kill? And it was just constant. You know, mostly younger lads asked that question, not me family. You know, like friends, because don't understand. And I, and I was just sitting there thinking, wow, just leave me alone. You know, I've literally just got home. I just want to sit. And I think that's when it started to deteriorate. You know, you're you, you then back at home with laws and rules and police, you know, and being at home, waking up of a night as well, sometimes thinking I was back there, you know, going down the stairs to live in like the attic in my bedroom was up, up the top stairs and it had a big skylight in my room and you could hear noise if it was open, like a bang outside and, and anything like that. And, you know, you'd hear one bang outside and I'd be up, bang. And I'd be threatened, like, where am I, where am I? And I'd be so disorientated. And I think that's when I started to realise, you know, something might be up. But the culture in my life that I've always brought up to is, I wouldn't go and give you a hug. Suck it in, say nothing. You know, if I went to my sergeant, which I did say to him, I was struggling. When I went back to my battalion, I said to him, look, say, and he said to me, what the fuck do you want to hug? Go away. Because you, 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 mental health back then, stuff like that, it just wasn't, and especially as a man, mm. you know, you, you know, you didn't want to open up. So in the end, I just felt this massive weight, this, this just uncontrollable anxiety, and 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 feel myself filling up all the time. And I was like, like, I couldn't breathe, and then just every day, just putting it behind me. You know, and then, you know, with, with that, with a soldier becomes self-medication. We won't go to a doctor 
and talk about our feelings. We'll just drink. You know, we'll just open a beer, talk a load of rubbish with the boys and drink until I fall flat asleep. You know, it, that's how stupid it was. You know, back then, that's the way it was. Yeah. That's how you coped. I mean, uh, I, I, I'm hearing what you're saying back then, uh, and it's certainly uh, things have gotten better, but I think certainly both our countries are experiencing uh, still a, a wave of, of, of mental health trauma that our veterans are dealing with uh, for one reason or another. And I think, Will, you, did you was that part of the, the aim of this book as well, is to try and bring some of that into the kind of social discourse, the trauma that comes not only from obviously the trial that we'll touch on shortly, but also from the actual war, what people experience in war. It's something that somebody who hasn't seen it, a civilian, cannot contextualize. Like Joe was saying, you know, his mates would come, well, how many people did you kill? Because there's this counter-narrative of war, this glorified idea of war, this, you know, go forth and serve, uh, you know, for queen and country. Uh, there's there is a there is an honourable dimension to service that anybody who puts a uniform on is 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 captivated by, but there is the cost of that that we don't necessarily address in our social discourse. And I think your book does it really well. But I wonder if that was actually a name of it um, the, uh, when you were kind of thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the bringing home the true long-term cost of war was one of my aims and and to get that conversation going uh with writing the book um there's there's an, an image that that sticks with me that's there's not really to do with the the book itself but in some ways informed why i wanted to, to write it i i remember um and it, it's about um american service personnel i was uh, I spent a lot of time, lived for almost a decade in, in the United States, and I was I was traveling within the US, and I remember sitting in the, the departure lounge, plane arrived, a bunch of passengers were deplaning, and, and we, were, we were there waiting to kind of get off that plane where it had been emptied, and coming off the, off the, the plane here in, in the States, there was uh, a couple of service personnel in their in their uniforms with their big duffel bags over their over their shoulders. And as soon as they they walked through off the uh, you know off the plane and uh, off the jetway uh, into the departure lounge, everyone stood up and started applauding. And for, for me, you know, being brought up in 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 the UK uh, for twenty five or so years of my life. That's not something that we would ever do. We, we respect our service personnel and we value the, the contribution that they, they make, whether it's, you know, serving uh, for our, our freedom overseas or whether it's, you know, bagging up sandbags after there's been a flood or, you know, any kind of context. We, we appreciate them. I think the British have a, a more nuanced perspective of, of mm. you know, soldiers uh, to, to some extent, uh, whereas in the states there is this, you know, th- there is this veneration of of soldiers, um, which, which you know, it kind of comes from its America's own development, but the, 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 that also spilled over into the way in which I felt soldiering is perceived 
um, in, in the West and the way it can be uh, perhaps a draw for particularly young men and they can they can be kind of drawn to perhaps a you know a false promise of of what joining the army and, and potentially fighting in a war could could maybe bring them without realizing particularly today you know the the, the longer term impact of what what war's going to do to them and as you just said as, as joe just said you know back back then even you know 18 years ago there was not the attention on on mental health on uh, soldiers' welfare that there is even today. And I was saying to you just uh, off, offline that uh, one of the senior members of the military, I remember something that he said uh, when they were talking about charities like Help for Heroes that exist today to help soldiers, that they're, they're, the military's concern higher up with things like that was that the public would perceive soldiers as victims rather than victors. And, you know, with that, with that idea at the top, if it filters down, no wonder that they weren't giving the soldiers the help when they were they were coming out of these awful mm. situations. That yeah. they needed and and especially, I mean, in the face when you even asked for it. And, and that in itself, especially in those days, was a rarity, Joe. I mean, I, I, I'd imagine that wouldn't have been easy for you to... You, you must have been at the brink to put your hand up in that environment and then to be told what you want to hug. Um, that that I can't even imagine what that would have been like, uh, because then it, it it got it got a lot worse for you as well, right? Yeah, it got well worse, you know. But you understand is you know getting rejected from your own side and so on like that. Mm. It was heartbreaking. Mm. You know, I lauded his shoulder sign of weakness, you know, and he just pushed past me. So then I just wanted to shut my doors even before you know, I wouldn't let anybody in at this point, you know, and then I was arrested. You know, I went from that, it's just a whirlwind. You know, I had these two men just knock on the door into my room. I was sitting on the end of my bed and he said, are you Joseph McClary? They guard from Joseph McClary and I, and I said, and I looked. And to be fair, I honestly thought there they was a, a rumour going around with soldiers saying that you had to have a TV licence via TV. And if you get caught, you'll get like an £800 fine. <laughs> so I thought that this, these two gentlemen were from the TV licence. So he was like, he Joseph McClary. I was like, no, I'm not Joseph McClary. He's like, no, I know you're Joseph McClary. And I was like, that's not my television. You know, I, <laughs> I'm like, sorry, I'm mate, not. but that's, uh, no, that's no, just... it's funny. Looking back on it now, you know, like this is, I honestly yeah. thought that these, because I, I was like, oh my God, I've been caught. But I love that. It's such a classic soul. No, 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 mate, that's not me. <laughs> that, that's not me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's not me. That's brilliant. You know, we've all got the same uniform on. Um, but yeah, we. And then he said, "No, look." And then he arrested me on. He said, "You know, arresting your maiden on war crimes uh, for the young lad who passed away." And I was just like, "But this this fellow was so sure of himself. Like he was, he stood tall. He was big. He was aggressive, and he couldn't wait to get me." Like, and I was like, just slow down. You've got a mistake. You, there's got to be some, you know, it, it, me, me sergeants flew through the door. We're trying to say to me, you know, pushing them out. We've got a lot this, of This is military police, right? They came now. That's yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They were yeah, from yeah. the Special Investigation Bureau. It was like yeah. the, the CID of the Army. Mm -hmm. um, big, tall suits, doing in uniform. Uh, but it just and everything. And in the end, he said, you know, turn around and to handcuff me. And I was and like, 
But Musaizen couldn't understand why he was saying like he's not aggressive. So just just walking down, you know, everything, and he was trying to reassure me, and you know, there was a lot of hostility because you you just don't walk into someone's company and just be like barge past your side, and you, and, you know, you talk will have the respect to say, but he had no intention. He wanted it to erupt. He wanted to try and rile me, and and to be honest, I wasn't riled. I was scared. I was on. I, I had so much emotions, and I probably was a little bit suffering as well from PTSD and. Had so much going on, and then I remember sitting in the back of the police car, the military police car. I was already in London, but he drove me into central London. Like it was, it was probably only a three or four mile journey. But in London, if you'd be in, mm, mm. that'd take you half an hour. Mm, yeah. There's traffic, and I remember sitting in the back of the car on my own, no one with the two policemen, and I was so scared. And that, and he was like, "You killed a kid, you little murderer." And I was like, I didn't do it. He's like, he's a little kiddie killer. You killed a kid. And I just, I couldn't even wipe my hands because I was in cuffs. And I was just like, wow, this is unreal. So I just sort of tried to block it out. I didn't want to rise to it because I didn't want to say, like, I didn't want them to know. I, I, like, I, I, I was angry or scared because I wasn't. I didn't understand it truly. Mm. And then he said to me, he got me out of the car. The two big massive brown gates they were and he opened up he drove me into like this cobbled court and as i got out the car yeah as he got out the car and led away his friend said to me in the lines of like come on mate just tell him you did it he was just a ragged don't worry about it and i was <laughs> like i'm not gonna do this with you are you even meant to be speaking to me like i didn't kill anybody i didn't do it and then he sort of pushed me away, put me to the cell and left me there. And I was like, all of this has just happened. And I've not even stolen a Mars bar before. You know, I've got no criminal records. And like, I'm thinking, wow, what, what's going on? And, and he brought this um, a representation from the army to, to a brief to, to look after me. And, and I remember he came into the cell and he spoke to me and he's like, he, he didn't understand it. He was like fresh out of school. You know, this lad had acne and he's you know, like he's like some and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, like he's just a teenager and he's I'm younger than me. And he's like, I'm here to represent you. And I think what you should do is is just go along with what they say. Oh, I said, look, I said I'm not really sure how all this works, but I know you're not for me. No offense, but you you're wrong. You know, you only, like, I even asked him, have you done this type of work before? He said, no. And that's who you've sent to represent me. You know, I was heartbroken. But why was it? I mean, what, 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 I don't know, maybe Will, you've got something, something on this. I mean, what, why was, it strikes me as though the military police was unkind, but surely there's a reason for that lack of kindness. I mean, is there, have you seen that elsewhere? Or what's the, what, where were they coming from? I mean, I actually spoke to um, one of the, the, the two arresting officers that uh, uh, were part of the RMP, the Royal Military Police, and uh, was, was there and arrested Joe. Yeah. And uh, I, I was 
I, I kind of came to my own conclusions and this in 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 no way is a defense of the way in which Joe was treated by by the RMP but my view and and, and we again we touched on this earlier but that the military police were themselves scarred by their time serving in Iraq because a lot of the RMP who end up investigating British soldiers um, after they returned from Iraq, those RMP themselves had served in Iraq. So they had witnessed firsthand some of the effects of the war themselves. So they they had their own scars. So this is kind of what I mean about how the the kind of concentric circles of you know the, the pain and trauma of war. It's it's so wide reaching, and, and you know they say hurt people hurt people, right? And so you know if you've got you know a military policeman who has you know got undiagnosed PTSD or diagnosed PTSD, they, they've got they've got issues as a result of what they witnessed, and we know that uh, like the RMP. There were uh, six Royal Military policemen who were who were killed in June 2003 in Marjal Kabah by uh, a massive mob of Iraqis who had got angry at, at the British. We know that the the RMP were photographing the, the corpses of dead Iraqis. They were attending to British soldiers who had been, you know, killed as they were driving around. They'd witnessed awful things as well. And, you know, it's they were they were passing on that. My the conclusion I drew was that they were passing on that that same trauma, that same hurt to the soldiers that they were investigating. And, you know, I've, I've read elsewhere that in other investigations, there were RMP that were using quite harsh tactics when they were investigating. And that's that's, you know, I think one of the things that maybe drove that yeah makes you wonder because i mean it ultimately we're all products of our environment right and 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 what joe suffered and what he's seen what he witnessed and also what he ended up being a part of is a, is a product of that chaotic environment uh, and then you're now compounding that with uh, rmp who the military police who've also had their own trauma and potentially you know carried that forward um gentlemen i'm conscious of the time but um the the story is just too captivating so if you guys are still happy to to keep going i've yeah, yeah. got a couple more questions if that if that's all right because now we're getting to the we're getting to the to the trial right because for you joe i think is the 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 the, the real trauma is only starting um because yeah. you're now being forced to read all of this and and Ultimately, I think you you attempt suicide four times throughout this entire uh, episode, which goes over uh, some some length of time. It's not a matter of weeks we're talking. I mean, we're talking years here, right? So what happened is I was arrested and then I was released. I went back to my regiment. Uh, for about four days, I was soldiering on. Just couldn't. The anxiety was crippling me at this point of what was going to happen. I still had no idea, you know, that was going to go to trial. And then it was like, well, you're going to be prosecuted. It's going to happen. So then the, the army sent me home. They were like, you can full pay, just go home and wait for your trial. That wait was two years. So when I went home, I couldn't, I self-medicate myself. I started drinking. I just didn't get in the jingles heavier. 
the flashbacks were worse. I was having to wear gloves and overnight as to sleep because I was scratching myself. You know, my mum then rung them on numerous occasions, like, you know, my son's really suffering. Yeah, I'm sure he'll be fine. Nothing. And then... So, sorry, rang who? When, when you say them, rang who? Rang the ministry. Yeah, sorry, she rang the ministry of defence a few times and the regiment to sell him. You know, the, he's not, that's not my son. That you, you, he's, he's at home. And then it was just crippling me. And in the end, it was just getting drunk and just enough so I could have the courage to do it. And then I tried to, I took a massive overdose. Um, and then my mum came in. My mum came in to, the, to find me and my brother and took me to hospital and he put my chest out um, and come, got me back around. And I mean, my brother shouting at me, you know, you're selfish. What are you doing? But I, I couldn't live. You know, I, I couldn't. And then they let me home and then I'd done it again. And the second time the, the hospital said, look, we're going to have to section you under the mental health act. I didn't really understand what that meant. And then they said to me, you know, we're going to lock you away. And my mum was crying, my brother was crying. And they put me in the civilian mental institute, locked the door behind me. I was so scared. And I was like, I was screaming to my mum, my mum, bring me army, let them come and get me, mum. Bring the army, please. And she was like, okay, son. And then they ended up sedating me because I got into a fight because I was so scared. And then they put that much drugs in me. I was out for two days and then I lied in the bed. And my brother came in there. I was like, is my mum in the army? He's like, they're not coming for you. They, they just, they, and my mum said, I'm sorry, son, they're not coming for you. He just said, let us know when he's out. It's like, oh, I'm still a part of the army. I, I, I'm still a soldier. You still pay me every month. Why, why is no one coming to get me out of this place? I was in there for two months nearly. Do you know? And in the end, I, I had to open up to get out. You know, and and to talk about it and to and to to to, to tell them. And even the doctor said to me, I'm so sorry, son, but I don't know how to deal with you. You're different than everybody I've got. I don't understand what you've been through. They tried to ring the military for them just to tear me away. Not one officer, not one sergeant, not one person ever came in there to see me, to say, you know what, son, come here. You're one of ours. We're going to help you. Nothing. Have you ever then, got to the bottom of that? Why? Why did no one? No one. I have asked that question so many times. Why didn't you come and get me? One of the main reasons behind everything, why I suffer from post stress is, I don't understand why you wash your hands of me. You just go to work every day. I was a part of that team. I put my life on the line and I was a goddamn good soldier. You know, I was up with the best. I was doing my corporal's course. You know, I, I was ready to be promoted. Everything was going in the right direction. And then a the whole world come crashing down and not one person from the military came to me. Not one. Not one welfare call. They had my mobile number. They had my home address. Not one letter. They never spoke to me in two years, and it kills me inside. Mm. Have you spoken to anyone me. since since then? Anyone from the from your original unit? No, no, they, they won't care less. To be honest, I mean, they, they were nice. Like there was listening to great people in there. I think if they understood, if the message was passed to them directly, maybe someone would have come. Mm. I don't know, but yeah. it drove me insane. Like, like I, I had hatred toward them. Like I, I, and then I went from like it's okay. It, it, it must have been a mistake. 
to trying to say, well, I just forgive it. It's okay, Joe. It wasn't a mistake. You, 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 I think it just got washed hands. You know, I'll just let them deal with it. I'm sure that he's fine with the NHS. You know, I ended up going close to it. I opened up to a man in there, one of the doctors, and he was like, he couldn't understand it. And he was like, I really wish someone from the military would come and get you because I think they'd have a better understanding. And there was no healthy heroes or nothing. And when I was released, you know, it still didn't go away. The anxiety, the sleeping, the drinking. You know, I used to get in fights and not fight back, thinking, let him hit me on the head. Maybe I'll wake up and one day it won't even be here anymore. You know, I just wanted to die every day. And then he made me feel guilty. You know, like, then I questioned myself and I'm like, I didn't do it. And I'd cry uncontrollably to my mum. Oh, mum, make it stop. Come on, mum, please make it stop. I couldn't sleep without taking some type of alcohol to knock me out. You know, and it just, that was just uncontrollable. And then when it actually got to the trial a few weeks before we were ready to go, you know, I was, I'd gone from being this super confident man, stood my shoulders proud. You know, you you could throw anything at me and I would, would tackle it. You told me to get to the top of that, I'll get there and fight. Whatever you asked me to do, I would do. I became this, like, crippled with anxiety, frightened. Something would bang, I'd jump. I wouldn't understand the how to control it. I just became scared all the time. And then mental health, and it just got worse and heavier. You know, and, and the doctors could only do what they could do. I didn't like taking tablets because obviously I took an overdose, so I didn't really like taking them anymore. And when the child how long ago, how long after the uh, two thousand? One year was all this happening because you were in Iraq in two thousand three. When was all this the court case? Yeah, the trial was, um, I think, two thousand six, World seven. Yeah, two thousand six, uh, fifteen years ago, right. actually. And it was a, it was a military court martial, right? Can you just give us some context yeah. uh, behind that? Maybe maybe will as well, because I, I, I'd imagine you would have researched it was this, general uh, court martial. General court martial, okay. Which yeah, is so it was like the highest, the level. highest, the, right. the highest. Yeah, there, there wasn't ever anything before that. Yeah, do you know right. what I mean? So this is the highest one. Um, you know, I remember being inside this minibus driving up to the court. And there was just thousands of people taking pictures and cameras and, and someone threw a towel over my head. And I was like, I, I'm not, I don't want you to have a to be ashamed of. Why, why have you threw a towel over me? Take it off. I'm nothing to be ashamed of. You couldn't have done any worse to me. Do you know what I mean? I, you know, I am nothing to feel ashamed of and I took it off. I mean, you know, my uniform didn't fit me. My medals, someone had dropped them out, the, out of me out of my room. All my uniform was destroyed because they just left me behind. So all my locker, my bed space, everything was all stolen, all my all my kit. And then someone just they just left me behind. Yeah. Is this um is this story unique, Will? I mean, I know you the, the book tells Joe's story, but is this a unique story? I mean I think uh, in terms of its, you know, uniqueness, uh, sadly, it's it's not. There were, it, this was the, there was one trial, and it's actually the same judge that was uh, a few months before Joe's trial, but that was into some photographs that had been taken 
uh, posing Iraqis in 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 in, in positions and uh, and of dead Iraqis. So there was a court case relating to that, but otherwise Joe's case was really the, the first kind of court martial into conduct of, of soldiers uh, mm. during the actions in, in Iraq. And there, you know, so it was, it was kind of groundbreaking in, 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 in some respects, but from everything that I've read from other soldiers that I've, I've spoken to, they also went through similar traumatic difficulties uh, waiting for for a trial, um, none that you know really kind of struck me as uh, in in terms of the, the depth um, of Joe's experiences. Um, obviously, I've got to know Joe, you know, quite well, and you know he's very vivid in his descriptions, very very visceral uh, experiences that that he had, but. As we touched on earlier, there's uh, a really high number of military suicides. Um, there's soldiers that have been, you know, just massively detrimentally impacted. Their lives have have been ruined by um, by accusations, by what they've, you know, seen and uh, their experiences uh, in in the conflict in the Middle East. And you know, this is this is something that you know other soldiers sadly have, have had to go through and the you know the, the Ministry of Defense didn't step up, didn't recognize the help that they that they needed. Mm. And I mean Joe Joe's case was obviously the first one, but it certainly wasn't the last. And and I guess this is the I mean Australia's experience is something very similar now with some of our soldiers uh, facing some pretty significant charges. Obviously we the Geneva Convention rules of you know war uh, rules of engagement exist for a reason. But my a continuous dilemma that I have, is this something, are these, you know, rules of engagement, the rules of war, something that we apply almost clinically in a place of peace, in a place of calm without the context? Because I'd imagine there is a, you know, a, a, I'm, I'm, almost inclined to say that it's very difficult to fight a war uh, without some sense of dehumanization, which then ultimately will lead to some, uh, I don't want to call them atrocities, right, but some breaches of these rules. Uh, And I'd imagine Joe has probably seen a whole bunch of different things that people aren't answering for. And I certainly know that uh, a lot of, uh, there is a lot of things out there that people had witnessed or had uh, been a part of. Is this something you've come across that these are, these are also scars that people carry that, that well, maybe this is a better question for you, Joe, uh, that uh, soldiers carry these scars of things that they ultimately ended up doing and they kind of feel bad for, but they're not answering for them because there's no one asking the question. But the nature of war is such that you are in an environment where you're going to do things that go outside of your own moral compass, outside of your own values, because like you said before, you're in a – you're in a place that you just don't understand. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, hundred percent. This we've all got scars. Do you know what I mean? There's, there'll be people out there who'll have done something out of there. You know, and maybe it hasn't been investigated. I don't know, but you know, I, it, it'll haunt them. And you know, it, like just, just war is in itself. It, it, it's just horrific. I mean, if people have done something that 
maybe not intentionally. I don't mean like mm. this fella's gone out and killed someone and not yeah. knowing about it. I mean like he's done something to control something, like he maybe have hit someone or pushed them away or he's had to get violent. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. To sort of protect his own safety in a way, you know, to, to, to lay his authority on the on the ground. You know, I, I read stories out there, you know, the Americans as well. You know, people who have done that, like the ones, the, the, the stories I read about these American soldiers who, who tortured the Iraqis, mm. you know, or interrogated them in ways. He, that soldier will feel that yeah. way along the line because he was being desensitized to that. You know, he would have been, that would have been it. You know, hoorah, as they say in America, like they would have been all up for it. And, you know, and it's only now he probably got home and he's thinking, and it'll haunt him. Holy shit. You know what I mean? You know, I I didn't see any of that when I was there. You know, like, you know, I didn't see anything like like really bad like that. Not, no one was tortured where we were there. You know, but the stories that I read were, were really bad. Yeah. And I can only imagine, you know, what they go through now. Yeah. Yeah, know? of course. And also all of that is uh, you know, we, we we have to we have to we can't look away. We can't look no. away as a as a civilized society. As, but what we have to do, I think, and this is where maybe uh, I'll get both your opinions on. We have to be far more scrupulous when we send people to war because war is ugly and things will go wrong. Things will happen 100%. that we that that good people will go forth and will do bad things for a number of reasons, whether it's circumstantial, whether it's because of the pressure, whether it's because of fear, whether it's because two of their mates just got, three of their mates got blown up next to them and they uh, just snapped uh, and they've lost the sense of control. Whatever it is, things will happen. Yet we have this tendency to send people forth to go to war uh, on a whim of a, uh, in a, I think, Will, you put it very eloquently uh, at the start, um, right? Uh, I, I, I'm paraphrasing, you know, it, it certainly wasn't, uh, wasn't par- it was embellished evidence, uh, to say the least, uh, that we went for. Um, what do you think? Who should, who do we hold accountable for this? For me, you know, it, it'd have to be the MOD, you know, like, you know, in my case alone, the evidence was just woeful at best. You know, it was just someone's really it's mine and, you know, there was there was no evidence really of any wrongdoing. And and there was a there was a witness, right? So maybe maybe just talk about that uh, in a bit because you mentioned it before, but maybe just talk about that now in a bit more detail because there was a witness uh, that came yeah. and spoke, but but yeah, kind of yeah, really blew the case wide open. Yeah, yeah. When when I had, had to listen for weeks of how bad I am of a person, you know, the prosecution has really gone for me. No, no me. And then, you know, this lad stands up and, and my barrister just turned around and said, you know, could you just tell me what happened in, in a way? And he said, I'm here for compensation. I was promised money. Nothing for the welfare of anybody or anything. He just kept saying, he kept pointing at me and was saying it was him and him and him, to the other lads, and I want my money. And the translator just kept saying he's after his compensation. He was told obviously by his solicitor, which is now obviously he doesn't, you know, he's been struck off the solicitor's role now because obviously he was fabricating all the lies. And, you know, it just blew it wide open. And I remember sitting there thinking, I've just tortured my life for two years. I've gone from to the bottom and I'm sat in hell, not wanting to live. And this, this is, this is what you've said. It's just broke me. 
you know, you know, he'd saying all his lies for, for wealth. You know what I mean? It was just crazy. Yeah. Broke me, it broke me in half. Absolutely. Again, I'm sorry that you had to go through that, man. That sounds absolutely no, no, horrifying. No. It's just, uh, I mean, it's it's a lot. It's it's. I have the luxury of sitting, uh, looking at this story through my eyes, uh, not having seen it through yours, which I'm imagining is is absolute horror. Uh, particularly listening to yourself, listening to yourself being described in such terms that you are. Uh, a cold-hearted murderer because it was uh, the evidence the fabricated evidence was that you were throwing bricks uh at uh at the young lad who unfortunately uh drowned well i want to put you on the spot who do you think do we hold accountable for this where 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 should the buck stop i think that the i mean there's there's, there's plenty of blame in some respects obviously the military i think failed in its duty of care towards Joe in terms of supporting him, in terms of providing for his his mental health, um, and in really just in terms of, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, check-in calls, you know, during the run-up to the, the trial, or, or whether it's, you know, just supporting him and his family during that, that period, right? I mean, he, you know, he's still employed by the military, even if, you know, he wasn't there on a barracks so there was a duty of care failure there uh but then there's also on the wider context i think that you know there should be and there really hasn't been uh, accountability towards the politicians that took the country to war and they you know they they say they did it with integrity or upon the evidence that was prevented to them presented to them at the time but there was a lot of criticism at the time before the war about the the evidence um there were concerns about the motivations for going to war um there were you know around the world there was up to a hundred million people converging in 600 cities of 60 countries against the war there was you know the the, the world was questioning this this conflict um whether it was really necessary and you know there, there's there's you know obviously uh, governments change, politicians there's a, there's a turnover there, but there's you know there's there's, there's still accountability, and uh, you know I think these these questions still need to be asked. Yeah, yeah I tend to agree with that. I tend to agree with that. Um, but the story has a somewhat of a silver lining, I guess. And and again, it's easy for me to say that not not seeing it all through your eyes, Joe. But ultimately, you were cleared. Uh, all four of you were cleared because there were four of you that were uh, court-martialed. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. The evidence was that there was no, in fact, there was no evidence, it, it, and it was a tragic uh, accident, uh, as you described at the start. What is your life like? How, how are you now? How how have you? I mean, this is now, you know, as you said, fifteen years ago, as Will said, fifteen years ago. How how have the last fifteen years been for you? Coming, through it's been that? really tough. Yeah, it's been really tough. I, I still suffer PTSD. You know, I still suffer, but you know, I don't, I don't close the door on you know, I've got you know, close people I can speak to about stuff and you know, I didn't have it back then. But after the trial and, and the not guilty, it just never ended. Like, I was reinvestigated four further times after after the trial. I remember them saying to me, not guilty, and the tears just didn't roll off my face, they burst out. It was you just burst out my eyes, and I could just remember shaking uncontrollably, like. Finally, I thought that was it. I can, I can go and do my life. 
You know what I mean? He, he literally just said to me, right, you're allowed the army, sign there. You know, it was awful, but I was, I was, I was happy to do that. I was just like, define, just leave me alone. Mm. You know, if I now look back on it, he just bullied me out. You know, I lost my pension, I lost everything. You know, I was just too young to even understand it. I was that suffering that bad. I didn't understand all that side of it. What I could have lost, I didn't even get a resettlement course. I give them 10 years of my life. You know, by law, you have to give me some type of resettlement to to go out and, and have a course. I didn't get it. Just just never got nothing. So literally pushed me out the door, signed there. There you go, honourable discharge. And then they reinvestigated me. So as I'm trying to build my life up again, the, 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 the IR team, were, you know, they, they went to me, my, my wife's work and was asking questions. Do I hit her or do I, you know, I remember that someone from, I was a security officer in a hospital and he, one of the lads came up to me and said to me, look, this fella's coming around asking really strange questions about you, Joe. And I remember thinking, what? I already suffered that bad. And then it only came to light a bit long, a little while later that they were sending people out to investigate. What would you have got from that? It, it was just stupid, stupid. And then the, in 2000, I think it was 2016, they dragged me back to London. And I was going out with my kids and my, and my wife to the park and the phone rang. And it was a news, it was a, it was a woman from the news. And she says to me, hi, how do you feel like you might be going to The Hague? What? I was like, I, I don't know what you're on about. You got the wrong number. She says, this Joseph McClary. I was like, yeah, that's Joseph McClary. He's like, yeah, your trials look like it's going to get reinvestigated and you're going to, you know, you possibly could go to The Hague uh, and you have to be recalled uh, to London. So I ended up giving me a name and address in to the people uh, in London who were doing the trial uh, for, for me to go back to stand uh, and do like, it's called like a friendly... It was just stupid. And then I said to them, I'm really going to struggle with this because I'm in mental health. And he said to me, just go and ring Hell for Heroes. I'm sure you'll be fine. I said, no, I don't think you understand. This nearly killed me last time. You're not doing it to me again. And yet I said to him, I'm not coming. I don't want to come. And he went to me, if you don't turn up, we'll go to the high court, get a warrant and arrest you. Well, I said to him, you just told me it was voluntary. Two seconds ago, you said to me on the phone, it's voluntary, you don't have to turn up. I chose not to turn up. And looking back, and I always wish I'd said, no, come and arrest me, because you, you shouldn't have done it to me. And yet, you dragged me back into that cause. And then his, um, I think it's the judge's name now, but he wrote a report sort of damning me. And I was like, because I was angry, that, you know, when he was asking me questions, I was always going to be angry. You know, this this same judge sat in a room with me and said to me, I said to him, I tried to kill myself last time over this. Also, uh, my friend Martin also tried to take his own life. Mm. And he went on, basically told me to button my lip up and just get on with it. And this is 2016, yeah. so this is it, now rather, you know. This was, yeah. I mean, you, 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 you described Joe's, you know, the kind of climax of the court-martial in 2006. You used the phrase silver lining and, you know, it struck me then. It's like, I'm, I'm kind of questioning, obviously, Joe can answer whether, whether we're at the silver lining mm. yet or we're kind of on the way. But it's, you know, just from talking to Joe, I, you know, I know that, you know, in the decade from 2006 to end of 2016, um, 
that was a you know a decade in which uh, a good portion of that Joe endured having to go through repeated investigations. First, the IHATS investigation, uh, who couldn't find any further evidence. They then passed on uh, the case to the what was known as the IFI, the Iraq Fatalities Inquiry, and and the uh, the judge from that. Um, in 2016, Sir George Newman, he was really critical of, of, of Joe, um, and, and at the time, Joe's you know was just referred to in pseudonym. But uh, I mean, he, he the judge in his report called the incident a clumsy, ill-disciplined piece of conduct without consideration of the risk of harm. And then he went on to, to specifically say that that he wasn't convinced by Joe's testimony, but. Actually, you know, I know Joe particularly was, as, as he said, just didn't think that George Newman, Sir George, recognised what these soldiers had actually been through. And, and you know, I was touched by when, when Joe, as he, he mentioned a moment ago, standing up for, for, for Martin when, when Sir George seemed to disregard the, 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 the mental health struggles that Joe and Martin and potentially the, other, the others there had had been through and were still going through, and that bringing these these um, these these memories, these issues back up again, it was it was peeling up, it was reopening those wounds, and continued to have this effect of just exacerbating the the kind of PTSD. And you know, it's uh, awful that uh, that they went through that. Yeah, absolute disregard. And, and please tell me things are at least somewhat better in the UK now, at least the way things are spoken about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I have a friend who's um, an amputee and, um, I, you know, he's a great lad. Went on to do massive things, you know, Paralympian. And he he said, like he said, you know what, Joe, should I feel sorry for it? Sometimes I feel like yours was the making for everybody else to get help. Do you know what I mean? He sometimes and he says to me, you know, we have conversations and he says to me, I, I feel terrible, he said. And I said, you don't have to feel terrible. He said, if it wasn't for the people like you, then like he had loads of help, you know, and, and things are a lot better now for them, which is great. And so it should be. You know, you put your life on the line for anybody, you know, you should you should get what your rewards are. And, you know, and he's a cracking lad. Um, but, I mean, but you're also not asking for a reward. I mean, you're just asking for, 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 for a bit of humanity in your in the way you treat it, but also just just, just help to, to, to overcome yeah. the, the yeah. significant trauma. Have you had any compensation? Have you, has there been any talk of, because I know there's a court case that's on there's, going at the moment. There's a legal, we've got a legal action now. There's 30 different soldiers. So there's 30 different soldiers now all uh, getting represented by the same solicitor, um, Hilary Meredith, who's representing us, you know, and she's been fighting this for a long time. So hopefully now, you know, we'll get some type of maybe compensation or to be fair, I wouldn't mind. I would just love to sit there and ask him, you know, the person who was in charge, just love to, why did you leave me? You know, when I needed you the most, why didn't you say to me, come on, son, you know, people are this like stigma around men where we just, you, know, you can't do it. Like the, the, the suicide rates tonight, you know, like, and I tell people now, me definitely, don't be afraid to speak out. You know, you anyone, you know, who's got issues with mental health, I'm a massive supporter, like I'm saying, like just come on, open up. You know, let's sit down, let's talk it out, let's laugh, let's cry. You know, don't be ashamed. There's nothing at all to be ashamed about. Mm. If you're suffering, don't suffer in silence because 
the last thing you want to do is is end up where I was, you know, and it's a, it's a really horrible dark place. And if you can, if you know, you take anything out of listening from this and and anything you please, and you feel like you've got a problem, then get in touch with someone, and or even send me an email, and I'll come and chat to you. You know, me, no difference to me. And I congratulate no, you on saying that because that's a, I mean, it does take people like yourself who've been through these horrors to 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 speak up and and normalize the fact that mental health is you know is is it's an injury right it's like a you know it's like a broken arm that we can see right and you get a cast and it heals but you know with mental health we don't necessarily see those scars and um, we don't see them this is this is the problem you see we don't see any of these 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 things these what people are hurting inside Mm -hmm. and crippled you know i spoke to will over years for years and in different locations you know and sometimes i get really upset you know like in, in this middle of this restaurant i could feel myself tears rolling off my face but a lot of that was probably opening up so it will probably help me just as much you know i'll be yeah like it, it was great and i made a friend and and i got loads off my chest and you know like and it was it was like i'd come away from it and it was like a little bit of a releasing you know made me feel a bit better mm. you know yeah. And you know, Bill's done a fantastic job on the book. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Absolutely. No, the yeah. book is a, a fantastic read, and 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 I mean, I think it's important to to you know, as we can, as we as we're bringing this to a close, to just highlight uh, to reiterate that message about reaching out, because even though you've been through all of this, you've been through four suicide attempts, through you know, yeah. a decade of being dragged through various investigations, courts. Uh, you are now back at work. You you're married. You've got kids, right? I mean, is, you know, yeah, yeah. of course you're you're you've still got PTSD. But how is life yeah. now? I mean, is it? And this is maybe the yeah. silver lining part that I was uh, that I was prematurely yeah. uh, referring to earlier. I have a, a great family, an amazing wife. Well, sometimes sometimes <laughs> you switch the ball off. You know, it's like every wife, they always come at me. Or, we're yeah, all going to be in trouble for this one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's my fault, you know. But it, you know, I have a great family, and I, I you know, I, I live for my family. That's that's what I do. You know, I'm not a big fan of going out with the boys, or you know, not wrong with that. But I just have my own man now. Like I, you know, I'm set like a lot. You know, got me mortgage, my house. I go to work every day. Of course, I still look back and suffer. But I can deal with it now. I have mechanisms that if and my wife knows when I'm struggling, she knows when I wake up at four o'clock in the morning sweating, that she just calms me down, cup of tea, you know, breathe it out and, and just stuff like that. And then maybe talk it out. And I can promise you, anyone who is suffering from mental health, getting it off your chest is is a hundred percent better. Me speaking to Will, I came home a lot feeling a lot better. And over the years, I probably passed it on to him. And then he just ends up suffering. So I don't know whether that was the case, but anyway, it worked for me, so I was okay. Um, but no, if you can laugh and, and have, bring some kind of, a, you know, help to somebody, it's fantastic. You know, I will always listen. You know, I will always try and help someone else. I've been in that situation. I've been in the gutter. Yeah. It was lucky that I have a really strong family behind me, you know, to pick me up and never let me go. You know, some people, some especially people from the armed forces come from broken families. You know, they just joined because there was no other option for them. Mm. Um, and, you know, they didn't have that support. Them lads who have took their own lives. Every time I read it, it makes me cry. It just, 
Sometimes you think, oh, I wish I could have just, if I could have just got to him, if I could have just spoke to him. You know, a man five down, five doors up from me here, killed himself, uh, hung himself, and I had to pick him up and unhook him off the rope. Uh, on a Sunday morning, his family and kids were screaming. This is just a civilian. No. And it tortured me, the fact that I passed this gentleman all the time. And I never said to him, I used to say morning to him, I didn't know he struggled, he worked further down the road. He, he was, and I always said to my wife, I wish I could have seen him. Mm. This is only like two years ago or a year ago. If I could have just got him at that point with him and to come in and have a cup of tea, mate. Yeah. You know, yeah. Matter, bang the world to rights. Yeah. You know, and make him and help him with his struggles. But again, it was just another man who who's gone and, and killed himself and, and he had a family and a wife. Mm. But a silver lining anyway is yeah, I am doing extremely well now and I am a better person. I cope with, with, with my PTSD. I still suffer, but controlled. I have ways of doing it. You know, I have bad days, but, you know, I, I just take some time out, you know, and... Um, One day at a time. Yeah. Congratulations, yeah, just holding away. Watch a bit of home and away. Watch a bit of neighbours. <laughs> oh, no, don't. <laughs> don't. No, 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 It'll no, trigger no, you, no, mate. No. <laughs> yeah. But maybe, la- maybe yeah. a last question for you, Will. Uh, uh, how's the book been received so far? I mean, I know it's been only recently. It's only been two months or something it's been out. But um, how's it been received, uh, firstly, by the general public, but also uh, maybe more importantly, I don't know, by the military? That's a good question. Um, and it's, I mean, there's a, a kind of, you know, preamble to, to an answer. It's, it's slightly tricky. Uh, this is my first book, slightly tricky putting a book out there during a, a, you know, aftermath of a pandemic when there's still loads of restrictions and, you know, going out there and, and doing stuff is is, is somewhat still, um, you know, restricted, but been trying to get the word out since the, the book's been been launched. And it seems, you know, roundly, roundly pop, uh, positive, which uh, is, is is nice. And you know, really grateful for the the, the team at, at Pen and Sword, the uh, the publishers. You know, they're not a, a massive um, publishing house, but uh, they're they're really strongly behind the book. And uh, it's it's good to have it out there. Had some some reviews back, and they've been they've been really positive. I, I've had actually someone who was the uh, company sergeant major for, for for Joe during some of his time. Uh, he he looked over the the book and uh, it's actually before it was it was uh, actually published and, and he was really positive about it. And uh, who's that? Black Alfie. May have been, may have been, not naming any names, but oh uh, right, was, uh, oh right, okay. Well, uh, he, exactly. uh, not naming any names, I, but I, might I, have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, listen, Pat. You know, you know, if you listen to this, uh, I love you, Pat. He's a great fella. He was a, a great commissar major, brilliant fella. That's awesome. Yeah, and I, and I truly believe if he would have known what was happening to me, he would have come and got me. Oh, I just don't think he knew about it. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure. We've uh, just nearly clocked two hours um, recording. Uh, I'm speechless. Thank you both so much. Uh, this is certainly the first time I've done uh, two guests at the same time. Uh, and I apologize if we, you know, jumbled around a little bit. But I think, uh, well, I thank you both for your patience with, you know, trying to kind of juggle that. But I think the story is so powerful. Uh, and there are so many angles of that story that 
uh, I was hoping to touch. Uh, so I really thank you for your time. And uh, Will, congratulations again on that book. It's a, it's a really, really uh, impactful read for me. Uh, and I'll certainly share it with uh, my colleagues and, and we'll put the link in the notes. And Joe, for you, mate, I take my hat off to you, mate. I'm absolutely blown away by your story. I'm blown away by your courage and your humility and your willingness to be vulnerable, which I think is hopefully a sign of things to come uh, with soldiers like yourself. Uh, hopefully, yeah. Standing up and, you know, owning this space uh, more so than those who seek to, I guess, suppress these voices because we need to hear them and those in the halls of power certainly need to hear them. And, and I echo your sentiment from before, Will, I think they need to be held accountable for some of these things um, as well. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know we've got... Thanks so much, Nick. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, James. Yes. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.